It's early on a Friday morning in June. Marta and the girls are asleep, and I'm at the kitchen table, thinking about this last episode and what it means for something to come to an end. In our story, Marta and I eventually found evidence that we were telling the truth and that someone else was lying about us. And that was an ending of sorts. But afterwards, I remember thinking that something still felt unresolved. I wanted an apology from the person who had harmed us, or the systems that had allowed him to do that. An admission that what they'd done was wrong. It becomes a question of repair, really. I think about all the people I've talked to and how they've reached for that in different ways, and so far have fallen short. But there's one story in my inbox that did seem like a success, if you can call it that. It comes from a couple named Ken and Mark. The threat they were facing was smaller than many of the others we've talked about so far. They also had the resources to fight it. But through that fight, they did find what felt to them like some semblance of repair. And I wanted to know what that felt like in the end. And what it might mean for the rest of us to get something like that too. So I'm going to dedicate this last episode to telling their story. I talked with Ken and Mark in March, a year after my story published. They were sitting side by side at a desk, close enough that their arms touched. Both in their 50s, salt and pepper hair. Mark had a kind face that reminded me of my little brother. Ken was a bit more serious, his tone more direct. Like a lawyer, I thought, even though he's a doctor by training. They were the first couple I'd interviewed for this project. So I started by asking them how they met. Here's Mark. You know, at that point in my life, I was by myself and I was not hopeful. <laughs> um, and when I met him, it just it changed the world. This was 2006 in Naples, Italy. Ken was a doctor on a Navy base there, and Mark had an adjacent government job. They met at the gym on base. He's smart. He's sweet. He's just fun, and he's very athletic. And, you know, the tennis part of it was just like, sealed the deal as far as I was concerned. Um, Tennis was one of the immediate first connections in the relationship. And that's Ken. He and Mark adore tennis, which is actually important to this story. After they met and fell in love, they played tennis wherever they lived, which in the years that followed included Hawaii, the Navajo Nation, and Australia. And eventually, when they were ready to settle down for good, they chose Gardner, Maine, an old mill town of fewer than 6,000 people. To say it was a dream for them wouldn't be overstating it. There was a historic district downtown and a scenic river nearby. They were closer to Ken's parents, who were aging. And they bought a big, old Victorian house that Mark in particular was enamored by, as a lover of antiques. Ken, who had retired from the Navy by then, took a job as a general practitioner, basically the town doctor. The funny thing that I learned about the house is that the person who owned it was the town doctor. So I think we were destined to end up there. I had a really good feeling about it, you know, initially. And we're in a new place, so what do we do? We go to play tennis. We saw, okay, yeah, within 15 minutes of our house, there was an indoor tennis club. It was the only one in town. They joined that club and signed up for a Monday night men's group. And they were there almost every week their first year in Maine. But then one day in December, Mark had a disagreement with a guy we're going to call Bill, 
the leader of that men's group. It was about who was allowed to participate in a competition Bill had organized. Not a big deal at all. But Mark remembers Bill getting really angry. And I kind of took it into a room because it was inappropriate to be doing this in the lobby of the tennis club. And we shook hands at the end. You know, we walked out thinking, I thought everything was over. It was a weird argument, but Mark just kind of moved on. The teams competed. Yeah, yeah. our team lost and we were, were fine with that. And that was on a Monday in the, in the end, December and that was the last time we were ever invited to play. We're at that moment in the story that I recognize in almost every story in my inbox. In episode one, I called it that moment before the shit hits the fan. But thinking about repair, it's also that moment before the breach happens. That moment when things still could have been okay. And I often look back at that moment and wonder, what if? What if that one thing hadn't happened? In the case of Ken and Mark, what if Bill had just left it at that? A silly disagreement over tennis. But that didn't happen. Instead, December turned into January, and Ken and Mark decided to renew their annual tennis club membership. They weren't getting emails to participate in the Monday night men's group anymore, but they figured Bill had removed them because he was mad. It was stupid, but not something worth fighting over. So they didn't say anything. But then a week after they renewed their membership, they got a call from the club manager. She tells me, you know, that there's a problem, and she said that um, one of the people there claimed that they received a sexually explicit email from me, and, you know, and I was like, what? I just was absolutely stunned. The person who said he had received that sexually explicit email was Bill. Here's Mark reading from it. Hi, Bill. We need to discuss the friction between us. As you may know, I'm contemplating quitting tennis at the club. You hurt me deeply last night when you insinuated that I intentionally broke team night rules. The alleged email starts out overwrought, saying things like, I'm a very sensitive man, and you calling me out in front of my peers has left me anguished. But quickly the email shifts. And the focus is on the feelings Mark has supposedly been harboring for Bill. You have such soft hands, the way you handle those hard balls arouses me. So you realize the severity of the situation. Ken can hardly walk this morning. I was so upset that I took out my sexual frustrations on him last night. If you care about me and my continued participation at the club, you'll meet me this evening at 6 o'clock behind a restaurant. And please come freshly showered. Yours truly, Mark. Good. Okay, that's the email. I probably don't need to say this, but Mark didn't write that email. When you read that email, what were both of your reactions? Honestly, you're not going to, you're probably going to think I'm crazy, but I actually laughed a little bit because it's just, just so, so sophomoric, so homophobic, so it, just bigoted and ridiculous that nobody would write that email. Right. And, you know, like I read this and you know how people speak. I have never heard him use the word anguished. And he's not going to write the sentence, I'm a very sensitive man. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, and, oh, come, come to the restaurant clean, you know, and showered, so then we can basically have sex. It's like, you know, come on. If you're a gay person, you know, you have sex and then you shower. Come on. <laughs> Let's, you know, it, it was full of stupidity. Ken and Mark may have laughed when they first heard that email, but it was upsetting, too. For me, you know, the line... 
Ken can hardly walk this morning. I'm so upset I took out my sexual frustration on him last night. Let me tell you, that got me pissed off. I was mm-hmm. angry because, you know, now you're basically accusing my partner of sexually assaulting me. And you think that my partner is going to write that and send that to somebody? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, you know, I was, <laughs> I was red hot angry at this point. I heard from quite a few queer people after my story ran. And a theme in their emails is how stereotypes about us, how we're more sexual or deviant or immoral, tend to be central to false accusations when they're made. Often the accusations themselves seem overblown or hyperbolic, just unbelievable in the face of it. And yet they're taken seriously. And you do have to wonder why. Or maybe you don't have to wonder why. It's pretty easy to see, as Ken and Mark did, that homophobia informed whoever wrote that fake email, which both of them assumed was Bill. But homophobia was also the reason it was believed. And in the days and weeks that followed, they realized just how many people had already read and believed that email. Believed that Mark would do a thing like that. The president of the club, the executive board, and some members of the tennis club, too. Ken and Mark still thought, for a little while at least, that they could easily clear up the mistake. Not just because the email was so over the top, so unlike anything that Mark would actually write, but because there was an obvious error. It had come from an email account that wasn't his. When Ken and Mark finally got a copy of the email, they saw the mistake right away. It was from an email address that looked just like Mark's, but with a dot instead of an underscore between the first and last name. Punctuation matters, people. Obviously, I didn't send it. And you're you're thinking right away, okay, well, that kind of proves it. It's not even his email. They pointed out the error, assuming that would exonerate Mark. But it didn't. The board president was unconvinced, as were other members of the tennis club. Apparently, they thought that Mark might just have two email addresses. It was around that time that Mark realized there might be nothing he could do to clear his name. And that's when the email stopped feeling even slightly funny and started to feel like a trap. He overheard a woman gossiping about him at the club one day. And then at a tennis match, another player who knew about the email refused to shake his hand. Mark was so stressed, he stopped sleeping well. He got pneumonia, then shingles. He knew the email was ridiculous, but he couldn't stop thinking about it. He couldn't escape the version of himself this email had created. I work so hard at everything. I'm not the smartest guy, but I work hard. And in this situation, I just felt like, I can't win here. I, I, can't, I can't defend myself anymore. I, I mean, I felt like such a loser. I don't know. It, it, it destroyed me as a person for quite a long time. Yeah. The rumors weren't directly about Ken, but he felt the weight of them too. He and Mark later learned that the board president had reacted with disgust and outrage when he'd read the email, as if gay sexuality itself were the taboo. It felt to Ken like some uncanny repeat of his life under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, that now excised military policy that said gays could serve in the military as long as they kept their gayness to themselves. You know, the whole idea of Don't Ask, Don't Tell was that the heterosexuals needed to be protected from gays who would hit on them. And this is basically playing out again, that this heterosexual male needs to be protected. That's homophobia. It is classic homophobia. It is being afraid of gays as sexual beings. My first girlfriend was in the Air Force during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, 
So the comparison resonated with me when Ken made it. We dated for four years, through the end of high school and most of college, and I remember the shaming effect of that policy. I remember the day my girlfriend left for Turkey for a longer tour. It was early in the morning. All the other crew had their partners on base to say goodbye, but I couldn't go. Or Jen didn't think it was a good idea that I go. That might make it too obvious, she said. I woke up early that morning anyway. I was in my dorm room, and at the time I knew she'd be leaving, I tried to place myself there in my mind, on the tarmac on a military base, waving goodbye to a receding plane. But that was such a brief part of my life. I can't imagine what it was like for Ken to live and work under a policy like that for more than a decade. He left and retired to a quiet town, and he hoped that kind of institutionalized homophobia was behind him. But then he realized it had followed him. It was still there. At this point, Ken and Mark really could have gone on with their lives. Not without some fallout, but they could have stopped using the tennis club, avoided Bill, and tried to let the whole thing go. But Ken didn't want to. It was a principle of things. And he eventually convinced Mark to fight as well. But fight how? They just wanted an apology. That and to get their club fees back for the year. But they had no idea how to get that without a lawsuit, which they didn't want. Until one day that spring, when Ken remembered something. The state of Maine actually had a governmental office to handle cases like theirs. What happened next? After a break. When we left off, Ken had remembered something. He had an idea for who might help. The Maine Human Rights Commission. So one day I just stopped by their office to talk to them, just to get some background information. I didn't know this, but there are actually agencies in many states set up to handle problems like Ken and Mark's, which is to say questions of discrimination. What they do and how they do it varies from place to place. But in general, these are bodies that investigate complaints of unfair treatment, specifically those that violate a state's anti-discrimination laws. So if a Muslim woman is asked to remove her hijab in a McDonald's, she could file a complaint with her commission. Or if a Latino man is refused an apartment because the landlord doesn't like hearing Spanish, he could file a complaint as well. The commissions don't always have that much power to force change, and in Maine that's the case. But their decisions can be influential in mediating between parties when one alleges discrimination by the other. And that was Ken and Mark's hope when they filed their complaint in the spring of 2018. Their argument was that the tennis club had discriminated against them by allowing Bill to remove them from the Monday night men's group without notice. An investigator with the commission gathered evidence. She produced a report concluding that the tennis club had discriminated. But that was only a recommendation. A board of commissioners still had to make their final decision at a public meeting. That hearing was held in May of 2020, a couple months after all of us went into lockdown. So Ken and Mark watched everything unfold from a computer screen. Give me a sense of like where you were. Were you in your old Victorian home? Yeah. Were you together in the same screen? Or yeah. give me a sense. Yeah, of, yeah. yeah we're sitting screen. together. Sitting and... together next to each other. <laughs> we were so hopeful going into that yeah. that there was going to be some resolution to this. And yeah. but then we we got questioned a fair bit, and our lawyer had said if there's a lot of questions, it's not good because then they're doubting things. Sitting side by side while the panel deliberated, 
Ken and Mark felt helpless. They tracked the body language of the commissioners, searching for clues as to how each of them might vote. You just see them shaking their head, and they were going back and forth. And, and so you could start to figure out who was siding with you and who wasn't. And, they, you know, we were scribbling notes to each other, and I was writing three to one. And Mark was like, uh. I was writing <laughs> two, two to two. two. Two to two. There were four commissioners on the board at the time, not five as there should have been. And when the final vote came down, Mark was right. Two, two. And in the Maine Human Rights Commission... If it's two to two, you lose. You lose. Wow. And that was the end of the meeting. And they went on, and we were just basically Zoom meeting over. We're done. Tell me about that moment there. Oh, we cried. We, We actually hung up, just looked at each other and said, we have to get out of here. By out of here, Mark didn't just mean out of the house or even out of Gardner, a town that had started to feel suffocating the more the rumors about him spread. No, Mark meant out of the entire state. We can't pay taxes in a place like this because... We can't support the state. The state The just, state screwed up and... The, the state just told us that this is all right. The state of the Maine has endorsed this. This was the Maine Human Rights Commission. They've said it's okay, even though their own internal investigator... And that's why I was, I was done. Their response was about more than just one decision by the Maine Human Rights Commission... I was told I couldn't be in the United States Navy. We've been told we couldn't be a couple. And now you're going to tell me I can't play in a tennis club in your state? I'm out of here. You can have your tennis club. You can have your state. I'm not paying any more taxes. I'm not providing health care. I'm out of here. I'll go somewhere else. I was furious, and I still am about it. It felt heartbreaking that Ken and Mark decided to leave the seemingly perfect life they'd set up for themselves. The old Victorian house the town doctor job, and for what? Where could they go that homophobia wouldn't follow them? It didn't make logical sense to me, but I understood the emotional drive to leave. It came after a lifetime of being shamed and silenced. That email and that decision by the Maine Human Rights Commission, they were reminders that the past is always close. You know, I'll be honest with you, Sarah, this has affected every part of my life. And... It's not something that I'm ever going to be able to forget, even though I wish I could. It it really destroyed me for a long time. You know, to drag me back to the very basic part of who I am, it's just ridiculous. And as I told Ken, it's affected me forever. When Ken first reached out to me, it was at this point in their story. He wrote, I thought we would be vindicated. But I did take from your article that life goes on, and having a loving partner makes things more bearable. It was that line that immediately connected me to their story, because I'd felt that too. Having Marta did make what happened to us more bearable. We disagreed sometimes about how to handle what was happening. Marta, like Ken, was often indignant. She focused on the institutions that allowed us to be falsely accused. While I was much more like Mark, just really upset that one person would do something like that. But in the end, life did go on. Marta and I survived, and we still loved each other afterwards. And that felt like a feat. A few months after the Maine Human Rights Commission ruled against them, Ken and Mark decided to file a lawsuit against the tennis club, something they'd originally been hesitant to do. It settled quickly, and soon after it did, they got that thing a lot of us never will— a public apology. 
It was posted in March on the tennis club's website. We're very happy that the club's done this because that's that, that's what improves things in life. People admitting they made a mistake and saying they're sorry. That's really what we were looking for more so, than anything. I'm really, really happy about that. You know, we did get some justice. I searched for that apology recently, just wanting to see what it would look like and what it might feel like to read it there. It's under the news tab, now long buried beneath items about COVID policies and updates on the girls' tennis season. The website itself is basic, and the wording feels forced. But it's still an apology. It's still public. And that means something. The tennis club regrets that we did not promptly contact Mr. Gelsinger directly and meet with him to straighten out our error. We apologize for any harm done to the good names of Mr. Gelsinger and Dr. Wells. As we were all getting off Zoom, I asked Ken if he now had the happy ending he'd hoped for when he first emailed me. I do, he said. I think this is a happier ending. And then I got stuck on that word, happier, but still not happy. How do we get a happy ending? Because of all the people in my inbox, Ken and Mark had come about as close as I'd seen. Part of that for Ken is trying to fix the institutional problem. Lately, he's been pushing the Maine Human Rights Commission to change one of their policies. He doesn't want what happened to him and Mark to happen to others. I don't want to think that, you know, the only way you can succeed is if you actually have a bunch of, you know, extra cash to bankroll a lawsuit. (laughs) You know, that shouldn't be the criteria for people being treated well. So he's advocating for an amendment to the rule at the Maine Human Rights Commission about a tied vote resulting in a negative finding. It's a tiny fix, but it would have made a world of difference to Ken and Mark. And maybe one day that tiny change will make a difference to someone else. Dear Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Dear Sarah. Sarah, I'll keep this short. I'm sure you're receiving thousands of... I don't know why I felt compelled to write to you beyond just to say thank you for helping me and my husband feel a bit more sane. Felt momentarily less alone in our own nightmare. At the end of the day, I just wanted an apology for the stress and pain for how it put my life and career on pause. I especially resonate with moments of questioning my own sanity I could almost imagine myself doing the things I'm accused of, even though I know they are not true. You've inspired me to share my story with others from the perspective of a victim, instead of hiding my experience ridden with shame from the world. Thank you for articulating that particular brand of pain, that longing for a little truth, and the disappointment that you'll never get the truth, or even simply, I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you again for speaking out. And I'm so, so sorry you had to go through this. With deepest sincerity, I'm sending you and your family my best wishes. At the beginning of all this, I published a story. And I hoped I'd find closure in that act. That I would share what had happened and then move on. But then my inbox opened up what I thought I'd slammed shut. Emily and Laura and Francis and Vivian and Chantel and Letitia and Ken and Mark. And then all the stories I carry with me but have left untold. This whole podcast has been produced during the pandemic. That means I've never met any of those people in person. 
For each interview, I've zoomed into their living room or office, wherever they are in the country, and they've zoomed into my space, too. The producers of the show are on the call at the beginning, but then they darken their screens, and it's just me and this person who reached out to me to share their story after they'd read mine. There's always something intimate about that moment, when it's finally just us, but distant, too. It's a lonely island we occupy. That's what Lara Bazelon told me early on. But you're not alone, Vivian said. Or as Emily recently wrote, Sarah, at the risk of sounding cheesy, I am so glad to know you. I wrote back, I am too. I would never have known any of these people in my inbox if I hadn't told my story first. And sometimes it makes me despair, thinking about all of them. But there is also a softening I feel, because I now know they exist. The Inbox is a project of The Eleventh, from Pineapple Street Studios. It's written by Sarah Vereen and produced by Sarah Vereen, Janelle Pfeiffer, and Maria Robin-Somerville, with editing by Joel Lovell. The Eleventh team is Leela Day, Joe Lovell, Eric Menel, Janelle Pfeiffer, Chloe Persinos, and me, Kristen Torres. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Wise Berman. Our engineers are Raj Majika, Hannes Brown, and Debbie Sumner. Fact-checking by Sarah Ivry. Music by Raj Majika. Blank Forms and Blue Dot Sessions. Sales and marketing by Cadence 13. Artwork by Jonathan Conda. Across the series, you heard actors performing the text from some of the many emails that flooded Sarah's inbox. Those actors are Abby Wilde, Andrew Rasmussen, Dan Caffrey, Kevin Schering, Nate Betancourt, Rebecca Bolnez, Susan Myberg. And just a few more thank yous from me. Claire Gutierrez and Mike Benoit for advocating for my story. Christine Shea for The Space this summer. Lena Ferreira for yelling at me to do a podcast and helping me make that happen. And then, of course, to Marta for everything. And to those of you who reached out to me and trusted me with your stories, thank you. Next month, We'll be back with a new project, this time with writer, poet, and critic Hanifa Durakib. See you next month on the 11th.